Are you looking to improve employee engagement and retention? Do you struggle with decisions on who to hire or who to promote? I have an amazing opportunity for a forward-thinking, purpose-led, people-first organisation to work with me on the first pilot Happier at Work programme for corporates. The programme is entirely science-backed and you will have tangible outcomes in relation to employee engagement, retention, performance and productivity. The programme is aimed at people leaders with responsibility for hiring and promotion decisions. If this sounds like you, please get in touch at ifa at happieratwork.ie. That's A-O-I-F-E at happieratwork.ie. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for leaders who put people first. The podcast covers four broad themes, engagement and belonging, performance and productivity, leadership equity, and the future of work. Everything to do with the Happier at Work podcast relates to employee retention. You can find out more at happieratwork.ie. What data can really provide for us is the gift of focus. Of all the good things that we know we ought to do, what direction is the data pointing us into to say that this is where there seems to be a relationship there? And why not act on that one thing? Hello and welcome back to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Eva O'Brien, and my lovely guest today is Kevin Campbell, or you can call him Kevin G. Campbell if you want to try and find him on social media, on LinkedIn, because there's a lot of Kevin Campbells out there. So Kevin is an employee experience scientist at Qualtrics, and he's also the founder of a company called Lifted Leadership LLC. And in Lifted Leadership, he coaches Fortune 500 executives on how to acquire, develop and retain their most valuable asset, which is their people. He spent the last decade of his career building leaders and teams for companies like Stryker, P.F. Chang's, Amazon, and has worked for Deloitte and Gallup as a consultant as well. Prior to this, Kevin received a master's in organizational psychology where he studied under, and now forgive me in the pronunciation of this name, Mihaly Chisensk Mihaly, co-founder of Positive Psychology and the first researcher to recognize and name the mental state of flow, which is the optimal experience of total engagement. Now, I think you will agree that this episode is so practical. It's so insightful. We dig down a lot of different kind of avenues, what started as a conversation about employee experience and how to use data to improve the employee experience. We have some really, really practical insights for you throughout the entire episode. We talk about different things like the employee journey and and the different touch points in that employee journey and what that means and, and the difference that we can make to create happier working environments for employees. As always, I will do a synopsis at the end of the episode. So do listen out for that, um, you know, and do get involved in the conversation. If you have any questions about what we talked about, do feel free to reach out and ask me any questions that you might have. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Aoife O'Brien. That's A-O-I-F-E, O apostrophe B-R-I-E-N on LinkedIn. Or you can also find me on Instagram, happieratwork.ie. Reach out through the website as well, which is also happieratwork.ie. .ie and I look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy today's episode. 
Welcome, Kevin, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you as my guest today. Do you want to give people a little bit of a flavor of your background and how you got into what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for, for having me. Um, I got into what I'm doing because about a little bit over a decade ago, I found myself working as a headhunter, a recruiter uh, for Google. And at the time, it was considered one of the best places to work, according to all the workplace lists. And I expected that people would be walking around in a state of perpetual bliss. Uh, but that wasn't the case. There was still a high degree of variance in terms of how happy people were at work and how engaged people were in their job. Uh, so that really led me to want to understand employee engagement, employee experience, and employee happiness. Uh, and I studied organizational psychology with uh, one of the co-founders of Positive Psychology. Uh, and since then, I've, I've been on a journey. Um, uh, I'm a recovering consultant, so I worked with uh, the Gallup organization and Deloitte. And now I, I work in tech as an employee experience scientist with Qualtrics. And my role is to help organizations identify and close um, gaps in the employee experience to help them get from where they are to where they want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think that's a really nice synopsis and it sounds, I don't know the word to use, it's like, it sounds like a really noble profession and it sounds exactly what you're doing is making, creating happier working environments so that employees can thrive, so that their experience at work is a positive one. It's very fulfilling, especially when you can point out that uh, to organizations and to leaders that doing good by people is also good business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can start there because you know, I've had a few conversations recently where we've talked around this idea that putting people first, you know, it seems to be this big shift in mentality globally for organizations, but there are still some out there who insist on putting profits before people. Uh, what kind of data do you have to back up? Do you have any, you know, and maybe anonymized data that you can share around to creating a better employee experience or creating a happier working environment actually impact on the bottom line? So Qualtrics has um, an organization within Qualtrics called the XM Institute or the Experience Management Institute. And uh, we've done surveys of organizational leaders and they found that there's a, a multiple, a multiplier effect when organizations really focus on employee experience and customer experience. And when you add the two together, you have this multiplier effect in terms of revenue, profitability, growth. Um, and that all goes back to putting people first. Customers are people too. Yeah. Uh, and, and thinking about what's the, the impact that you want to have on the world as an organization. Um, and, and how does that connect back to profitability? Um, you know, the, the, the more you can retain good people, the longer they stay with your organization, the better they get at their ability to serve customers, the better they get at their ability to serve customers, the more customer retention and customer loyalty and customer mm -hmm. recommendations they'll have. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of it, if we're talking about it in a real business sense, it also has to do you know, with the switching cost, right? If, yes. if you're in an organization or a business where there's very little competition and the cost of switching is very high, then you know maybe your people experiences and employee experiences and customer experiences don't have uh, that big of an impact because you kind of have a captive audience. But for the majority of us, we're in a competitive market yeah. where consumers and employees have a choice in terms of, of where they want to go. And in an environment with rising prices, if you can't 
or won't compete on wages, or you can't or won't compete on prices, the only thing that you can really compete on is the quality of the experiences that people have. And that's what's going to make the difference between you and the other people that you're competing with in that that particular industry. Now, you use this term impact, and I'm curious about the idea of impact and how much people buy into the impact that the organization has. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very well, but I'm thinking about companies that that are perceived to do good in the world versus companies that are maybe um, they're not doing bad, but they're not kind of actively doing good. Or does that vary? Like, is that perception very subjective or is there a difference between the experience of employees in those different types of organizations? You know, I I think it does uh, have an impact on the experience of employees, but, you know, there's research on people that have so-called dirty jobs. Uh, You know, people who are debt collectors or uh, people who literally work with um, garbage or trash collection or work at morgues. And, um, you know, the 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 idea that some jobs aren't doing good in the world or or some some jobs or some businesses are, in a sense, tainted. Mm -hmm. um, What we find is that people that in those professions, they, they tend to think about it in a different way. Okay. Right. They, they tend to think about it in terms of, you know, a, 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 if you think about a, a defense attorney who who represents criminals, right? When you talk to folks in that line of work, they'll tell you that they're here to uphold a system of law and justice, and that everybody yeah. deserves a proper defense, right? Yeah. Uh, when you, interestingly, when you talk- interesting that you use that example. I'm I've just started watching How to Get Away with Murder, and that ex- that describes her exactly. She's upholding the law. It doesn't matter whether her her client is guilty or not. She's upholding the law and she's she's doing the best job that she can on behalf of her client, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, when you talk to people that are debt collectors that actually enjoy being a debt collector, could you imagine what what that was one of my first jobs outside high school? Uh, But, you know, being a debt collector, you can look at it as you're strong arming people that are in, in hard situations for the money that they owe. Or you could look at it through the lens of actually I'm tough enough to be able to handle this kind of work. Okay, right. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, people that, that work at, at morgues, um, you know, they might not focus on the, the fact that they handle dead bodies, but maybe they focus on the fact that they're helping families through a really hard time in their life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I work with, with folks in the energy industry, as an example, who, who really, there's a lot of really well-intentioned people in oil and gas and energy. And, um, you know, a lot of them really do want to make a positive impact in the world. And, Despite some of the the negative externalities of the work that they do, um, the world is in its current state powered by the work that they do. Right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I think a lot of it is the way that you frame your work and the way and the way that you think. And at, at the end of the day, um, no business happens without a customer at the center of it. Right. So yeah. so everybody's serving a, a customer, and ideally, you're making some sort of an impact on that customer. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, something that that on the surface feels completely altruistic, uh, but but there is an impact there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did read something recently about that, that doing good in the world doesn't have to be the entire world. It can be the one impact that you have on your one customer you know, that you made their day better or something like that in, in, in the kind of the context of what you're doing. It doesn't have, you don't have to 
be working for a company that's having this massive impact all over the world. And I just thought that was quite an interesting perspective. Um, and thank you for sharing that. The other question or the other um, kind of topic that came up there was if we're not able to compete on wages. And I know this is kind of a hot topic and especially now, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, Kevin, but certainly here people are being offered, you know, 30,000 more to switch roles. And it's a really competitive market at the moment. It's a candidate's market. Um, but at the same time, I'm a true believer that it's not it's not about the money. It is more about the experience. Do you have any data that kind of backs that up? Yeah, I, I'd say that I'll give you a really interesting example of, um, you know, sometimes it's not money or experience. Um, I was working Ooh, with an organization. Even more interesting. <laughs> uh, I was working with an organization that that found that um, they're traditionally underrepresented groups. So at this organization, the majority of employees are white or Asian. Uh, and they found that um, people of color um, outside of the Asian community had higher employee engagement scores than the majority of the organization. Hmm. Uh, but they were leaving at a higher rate. Okay, interesting. And that was really puzzling. Like, why are they leaving? Are they leaving because it's such a competitive market? Um, are they leave or are they leaving because um, the the data is inaccurate in some way? Like, perhaps they're not as engaged as they, they they're showing in the in their employee surveys. Maybe there's something related to inclusion that's aside from employee engagement that's that's driving this. And when I when I looked at the data. Their, their exit uh, interview data, uh, as well as their employee engagement data, what, what we saw was, first of all, you couldn't look at that group of employees as, as, a, as a monolith, right? Because the experience of um, Latin Hispanic employees and why they left was different from Black folks, was different from women. Um, and what we saw was that uh, for the Hispanic folks that had left, it was the competitive market. They were often going into um, higher level roles and getting increases in compensation. Mm -hmm. uh, but for Black folks and women, they were often leaving for things that had nothing to do with employment or money at all. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, childcare responsibilities or family responsibilities, or they wanted to make a career change. Um, so, you know, it is going to be individualized. So I think the more important question is not um, what's the trend in the market, although that is helpful to, to, to put into context. Yeah. It's, it's what is it for the particular um, uh, employee population that is attracted to the kind of employment that we offer? And um, what's that, that marketplace look like? What does our specific marketplace of employment look like? What does our talent pool look like? Uh, another example that comes to mind uh, was two healthcare organizations. Uh, one was a, a hospital system and the other was a, a medical device company. Uh, and the critical employee populations for the hospital system was nurses. And the critical employee population for the medical device company was sales folks. Mm. So, the, both of these organizations had assumed different things about their, their, the talent pool. Uh, the hospital organization assumed that nurses were going to be driven by mission and purpose. And the medical device company assumed that salespeople were going to be driven by compensation. Yeah, uh, okay. And, and the ability to make money. Um, but actually, it was, it was the opposite. It was flipped, right? And the reason for that is because nurses are able to find meaning and purpose in any kind of role, oh, right? Yeah, okay, that's yeah, something yeah. ubiquitous within that industry. So the differentiator 
was actually compensation. Mm. Whereas medical device salespeople, these are really, really highly compensated people that can make seven figures in the role. Um, so money was sort of just table stakes. The differentiator was the belief in the product and the, the mission and purpose and the ability of that product to save lives. Yeah. So, so it, it's, uh, so I think, you know, asking that question of, is it money or purpose? Well, you know, I, I think it's both and it's going to be the, the percentage of the pie, right. Uh, is going to be different for each person, but it's also going to be different for each talent pool yeah. and calibrating according to the talent pool that you're after is going to be more important than, than, than getting the overall trend. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes total sense. And it's, a really powerful example. I think it's really, really well illustrated in that example. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, we've kind of talked around analytics, but we haven't kind of explained exactly what it is or how people access it. And I have a feeling that in Ireland, for sure, we are behind on this journey. I think the UK are a bit ahead of us. But but talk to me about what's going on in the States at the moment in relation to analytics and using analytics to create better working environments for for people for employees i think it, it starts with recognizing that the data is already there yeah um uh and and it's really about asking questions of that data mm. to help you solve business problems and achieve business goals um so the the, the data that, that probably already exists within most organizations is the operational data um, the number of people that have been hired, the time to fill those roles, the uh, turnover metrics, uh, demographic metrics, um, anything that sits in your HRIS. Um, so in most organizations, that data is there. It might not be clean. It might not be easily accessible. Mm, uh, there might, might be different might systems. Yeah. yeah. But I think the, the table stakes is just, you, you know, the operational data, you, you have that. Mm. Uh, and you can, you can, you can do a lot with that, right? You can, you can, you can say based upon the source of hire, um, how long is that person's time to ramp, uh, you know, based upon the, the part of the organization that they sit in, there's going to be differences in terms of turnover. Mm. Uh, and I think that, that understanding in and of itself can, can add to a lot of insight, uh, that can help you improve the way that your business works. But the, the thing that's the trend and, and the future is thinking about not just the, the operational data that we call at Qualtrics, the O data. Mm. It's also connecting the X's and O's. So the X data, that's the experience data, right? So, so you can, the operational data tells you how many people left your organization. The experience data through employee feedback or, or listening and scraping information on Indeed or Glassdoor or other social media channels tells you why those people left, yeah, what the experience yeah. of leaving is. Um, the operational pieces around, did did people have their laptop on day one? Uh, mm. able to sign I in? I can relate. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Can't we all? I mean, I think so many yeah. people have, have an example of like an onboarding experience that sounded more like waterboarding, right? <laughs> Yes. And if you're yeah. not collecting experience data around that, you might be missing a big piece of, of the picture around what's happening, right? Because if you're just tracking whether or not the laptop went out, you might not know whether or not that person was able to log in and actually felt empowered to do their job. Yeah. 
And then when you think about the business impact on how long it takes that person to ramp up and whether or not they turn over within the first six months or year because their onboarding experience was felt like a hazing experience rather yes. than does someone have a camera is someone secretly filming here, <laughs> here you know <laughs> yeah yeah brilliant and uh yeah i mean everything that you're saying i suppose around that makes sense and we spoke before we started recording about this idea of the employee journey do you want to talk more about like what are the stages in that employee journey and how can we look at those stages slightly differently and how can we tweak the experience that employees are having at different stages using data? Yeah. So in my space, um, a lot of people traditionally and and still mm. um, look at metrics like employee engagement. Um, you know, the, the degree to which someone intends to stay in their role and the extra discretionary effort that they apply toward their role. Um, and that's usually done through some sort of a point in time uh, survey um, of the employee population. Um, but that's just that particular point in time, right? If it's it's the pulse check. Yeah. And I would argue that that most companies are doing, at, at, at the very least, uh, an annual pulse check. Um, you know, maybe some smaller organizations are not doing that, but, you know, take this as your cue that you, you need to start doing that at the very minimum is, you know, checking in finding out what's going on with people, but I'll let you continue. Sorry, Kevin. No, that's great. But I mean, that's just that, you know, most people are doing that. Um, but the part that's, that's usually missing is that um, there's that one point in time, but as you know, your day-to-day experience is going to impact that momentary yeah. sense of engagement, either Absolutely, positively yeah. or negatively every day, right? Like, the you know um and you think about these these um moments that matter in the employee journey onboarding is one that we talked about but it starts even before that you know what's your experience of finding out about this opportunity and what's the experience of of how you are recruited into the role and hired into the role and the the interviews that you've had and then we talk about that onboarding experience uh then there's usually some sort of time to ramp experience. And then as you progress throughout your career, your needs are going to change, right? A lot of times in organizations, what we'll see is employee engagement um, usually follows a U-shaped pattern where new joiners and uh, people that have been there, you know, it's different for every organization. Sometimes the dip happens at two years. Sometimes it happens at three or four years, but we typically see very engaged employees early on, and then they become less engaged uh, after a certain point of time. And then we usually see that jump back up. Sometimes it's at five years, sometimes it's at 10 years, sometimes it's at 20 years, right? So so there's this, there's this other pattern that happens. And and what's happening is that after a year or two, people Mm -hmm. start to grow restless. They want to try new things. They want to move up or move into a different role. And then you have the experience of going down on leave, um, for, uh, to care for a child or to care for a family member or because you're sick and then returning from leave and all of these mm. t- or, or moving into a management position right uh, from an individual contributor position or moving to a, a higher leadership position and all these different points on the employee journey have an impact on other points in the employee journey 
So your candidate experience impacts how engaged you're going to be six months, a year later. How engaged you are today as an individual contributor is going to have an impact on how effective you are as a manager. Your onboarding and training as a new manager is going to have a a downstream impact on the employee engagement and Mm. intent to stay and turnover metrics for your team. So, you know, Table Stakes is doing that yearly survey. The next maturity level up from there is to think about this, not just in terms of that point in time, but what are all the different experiences that are happening along the way? And then the next level up from that is to be able to draw the connections between the different points. And I'll I'll give a real simple illustration of we worked with a retail client that broke down manager behaviors on day one for new employees. And they could use that information to predict how included and how much people Mm -hmm. felt like they belonged six months later. And in this retail environment, they're onboarding a lot of people that have a ton of turnover. So sometimes the first connection that they have with a new employee is a text message or an email. Uh, Sometimes it's over Zoom. Sometimes it is a one-on-one meeting. And what we found is that only Zoom and one-on-one meetings made a difference. If if that on that first day, someone had a human to human connection, face-to-face connection, whether that's digitally or or in person, six months later, they felt like they belonged and they felt included in the organization. Any other way of of introducing a new employee to their manager led to significantly lower instances of belonging and inclusion. Right. Uh, And that's, that's a, it's a, a huge finding, right? When you, it, but you're not able to be able to find something like that unless you're connecting multiple touch points in the employee journey. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think everything that you're saying makes a lot of sense, but I, I, I still have this kind of underlying, like maybe it's a really simple and basic question, but it makes sense intuitively, but how do you know? And, you know, if I had, let's say, and I'm thinking to specific organizations where I was recruited into and the experience that I had, I can see how that led me to have the subsequent experiences that I had, let's say, in those roles. Um, but why is that? Why, why is that? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> is it, you know... I suppose from my perspective, it's uh, I didn't have the best experience of being recruited. I didn't have the best experience of being onboarded and subsequently felt less engaged throughout my entire the entire employee journey that I was on. Yeah. 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 And I think the, I think the reason is, is because, um, you know, humans aren't robots. Yeah. I think I think, I think we we you know, the. It, employees have workplace needs that when met, they, they give above and beyond. I think most people, and I think the data shows this, most people are good people. <laughs> most people are hardworking, want to do a good job. And it's, it's only when those things are absent that you, you, people become disempowered. People, people tend to give less of themselves. It's really just about making sure that you're doing the, the care and, and feeding and, and, and stewarding the, the people that, that choose to spend their time with your organization. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it makes sense intuitively, but I was like, well, well but why? But why? <laughs> um, there, there's a lot that I would like to unpack within that. I want to take a step back now and, and talk about this engagement U-shape. So you're saying it's a U-shape and that the kind of upward part of the, the second part of the, the U where it goes back up again could be anything from two years, could be 20 years. But um, what's driving that? So what's driving the, the increase in engagement after a long period of time of kind of, you know, disengagement, let's say, or, or less engagement? So, so uh, this was an interesting um, study that I did for an organization where uh, they, they noticed that U-shaped curve and they noticed that one of their key drivers of employee engagement was that sense of career progression. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, as measured by the question, I believe I have great career opportunities at this organization. Uh, and you, you saw that, that U-shaped curve with that question. And uh, what we found was that after about two years, when if people got promoted into a new role, that career progression metric jumped up. Um, and that's like, okay, that's nice to know, but we can't go around giving everybody a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but another piece of analysis that we did was to look at it and say, okay, well, what about when they don't get promoted, they make a lateral move, but they move into a different role. And what we see is that for those folks, their career progression metrics jumped up, not just as high as the people that got promoted, but even higher. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we call this the honeymoon effect, right? Yeah. When, when things are new and novel, you start to see the possibilities, the opportunities for growth. Um, but, but once um, you've been there for a while. All those things that are new and novel and exciting, they, mm. they fall out of the foreground and they go into the background, right? When you, yeah. when you buy a new car, you know, you have that new car. It's smell. got that new, the new car smell. It's all shiny. Yeah, even <laughs> if it's a new used car, right? It's new to yeah. you. And you start to notice yeah. all the other cars of that brand uh, yeah. or that make on the road. And you compare, like, actually, mine's a little bit nicer than that one, right? And you have a little bit of a, a, a you know, a, a skip in your step as a result of that. But yeah, yeah. human happiness um, has this thing called the hedonic treadmill, where mm. when things are new and novel, they, they tend to impact us, but over time, those things fall into the foreground, right? Like, uh, yeah. they've done, they done research where people move from, from the iciest parts of Michigan to the most beautiful parts of California and vice versa. And in the first few years, the folks that move from Michigan to California love the weather. I think another great example might be like Ireland to Sydney or something, right? But yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first few years, it's like, you're so much happier because the weather's so much better. Exactly. But after yeah, yeah. about two or three years, that, that novelty falls away and other things start to be more important to you. Um, so that's that's probably what's happening with that U-shaped curve. Yeah. The, the other thing that occurred to me as well, Kevin, is that, and, and you know, I was going to ask when you were saying about, well, it's the progression and people see career progression as something amazing. And I thought, well, it could be that the people who weren't promoted left the organization and therefore those who are there for longer are the ones who are getting promoted and therefore that's why it's going up. But I love the explanation as well around it's not just about promotion, it's about those lateral moves. And I know the importance of lateral moves and, and novelty and challenge in a role, because if you're doing something for two years and there's nothing really left 
new to learn that they're that you're kind of you're getting a bit bored and complacent in what you're doing there's no real challenge in what you're doing anymore but when you take on a new role and you have to learn new systems and you have to learn new people and and new ways of doing things and and new challenges new problems and issues that you encounter in the role i think um that can yeah gives a great sense of kind of refreshment um the other thing i wanted to touch on was this idea of workplace needs. That's something I talk about all the time. I'm hugely interested in this concept of needs. I did my dissertation research as part of my master's in uh, looking at this concept of fit and what drives our sense of fit in an organisation. And and the kind of primary driver is this uh, values and values alignment. But actually underlying that is our need satisfaction at work. So I love that you kind of brought that up, that it's we're humans, we're not robots. And actually, as leaders, we need to make sure that our employees needs are being met at work. And that's, you know, that's our primary role is to make sure their needs are being met and that they're being developed, essentially. Um, any any thoughts or any any ideas around ex- expanding on this concept of needs or, or their p- particular needs? You know, the, what I looked at as part of my dissertation were the uh, autonomy, relatedness and competence. But I know there are additional needs that uh, people have in the workplace as well. Is, do you have any research around that? Well, uh, yeah. So a- anecdotally, but but also uh, from a, from a research perspective, I, I love the, the the piece around well belongingness, um, relatedness. Yeah. Um, that that's that's huge to to, to the yeah. extent that that you know we we at Qualtrics on the employee experience scientist team sometimes we talk about whether belongingness should be considered part of the engagement index because. There's okay, such a yeah. high statistical relationship between the two. It's okay. A, yeah, yeah. But I think there's, I think from a from a, a diversity and inclusion perspective, it is useful to think about it as a separate metric, but it's so related. It's so it, it's so intertwined. Um, mastery, I think that's that's um, you know, and, and going back to this idea of fit. Um, uh, you know, Gallup did some research back in 2016 where they they asked people. Um, to rate what would cause them to think about looking for another job. And this this has changed. Uh, wages are, are much higher on that list now. <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> the number one thing was uh, the ability to do what they do best every day, to use their strength yeah. and role. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I think there's a, a dispositional element to that around, around mastery. But there's also that growth component related to that, right? Around um, really, really getting good at what you do. Uh, and then autonomy. There's there's so much depth to that that piece of autonomy. Um, and going back to you know self determination theory, right? Like yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. Tend to think about autonomous motivation as it, it, some people think about it in terms of black or white, right? Like it's either extrinsic mm. or intrinsic. But there's yeah. that middle piece around identified motivation, right? So it's like it is it is you know, I'm doing this because it's good for me. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. I'm doing this because, um, I feel like it's the right thing to do. And it's part of, um, my values, as you mentioned values. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that identified motivation is an underutilized part of the employee experience when it comes to things like, uh, goal setting and motivation and even onboarding. Right? Are you are you giving goals to the employee, or yeah. are you co-creating goals with the employee? Um, and that that can really tap into that basic psychological need of 
of autonomy and mastery and belongingness, right? Because it's a, it's a cooperative conversation. Um, yeah. You can identify personal growth goals within that conversation and you're yeah. expressing your sense of autonomy by virtue of, of co-creating those goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, really interesting. The, the other aspect I wanted to pick up on and I wanted to get your thoughts on, you mentioned that most people are hardworking and want to do a good job. Now, that's something that I believe. However, I've been challenged on that recently where people say to me, I'm not sure that everyone is like that, that there are some people who are kind of coasting. They want to get away with not doing very much work or they're not motivated by hard work, things like that. Do you have any data around that or do you have any kind of personal thoughts or, or anecdotes to share around that? It's one of the, the oldest findings in organizational psychology. Um, and it's, it's uh, theory X and theory Y. Mm. Uh, so so th- I can't answer the question of are people fundamentally good or bad? I think that's, <laughs> yeah. more of a, a, that's less of an empirical argument and more of a philosophical discussion or maybe even theological, depending on your, your orientation. But um, <laughs> I, I think the, the idea of whether managers and leaders believe that people are fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Clear impact on people's performance. And yeah. managers that that believe theory Y, I forget which is which, so uh, yeah. forgive me. If I'm wrong, <laughs> but theory X managers believe that people are fundamentally lazy and don't want to do the mm. best, um, and they need to use the stick to get them to do stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Theory Y uh, managers believe that people are are, are fundamentally self motivated and responsible. Mm. Um, and there's also this this uh, you know this this thing that they call um, the Pygmalion effect. Um, you know, uh, there was some research done on the, uh, Israeli military where they told a group of generals, um, that were intaking a new class of cadets that they were working with an exceptionally high performing group of people that had been specifically selected based upon their aptitude to be excellent soldiers. And they told another group of, of generals working with another group of cadets that these folks are just about average. And sure yeah. enough, the high-performing, highly selected group outperformed the other group. The only thing is, is that they were randomly assigned to the two groups. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So there's, yeah. you know, you, you, the expectations that you have of how people are and how they're going to behave um, changes the way that you approach and speak with them and, and deal with them in subtle ways that will have a big impact. So uh, I guess... This is, this is interesting as a, you know, someone who calls himself a scientist to say, but, but whether or not people are good or bad matters less than the, the mindset of whether or not you, you fundamentally believe people are good or bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whether and, and as a manager, how you behave based on those beliefs that you have about the people who are working with you. Yeah, 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 absolutely. yeah, yeah. Love that. Love that. <laughs> um, now. Again, before we started recording, we touched on this idea of using employee experience data to have more actionable outcomes in organizations. Do you have any examples that you'd like to share that we haven't already touched on during our conversation? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it. Uh, so I, I, I recently published an article uh, with the Exum Institute on taking action on employee experience data. And uh, the argument is that acting on this data is actually as easy as A, B, C, one, mm. two, three. <laughs> okay, love it. So A stands for action-oriented, uh, yeah. B stands for business-relevant, and C stands for conversation-based. So it begins with that A around action-orientation. 
And that starts with the way that you collect the data and the reason that you have behind collecting the data and being intentional about the reason behind you collect the data. Are you, it can go back to, to things as simple as what questions you ask on an employee engagement survey. Yeah. A lot of times people ask outcome questions like, I feel like I belong at work. I go above and beyond in my job. And those are all great questions to have, but you also want to ask actionable questions. Like, do I have the tools and equipment I need to be successful? Do mm. I know what's expected of me at work? And, yeah, yeah. And put as much emphasis on acting on the information as you do on collecting and fielding the information. You know, there's, there's organizations that have all these tools and tricks that they use to drive participation rate, but they don't put those same tools in place when it comes to finding out whether or not people have taken action on the information. Uh, so I think that's part of it, that action orientation piece. The other piece is making it business relevant. Right? Are you asking questions because they're interesting to people like us who, li who live in HR and people analytics and data science? Or are you asking questions that are relevant to the business? Um, what's, the, what's the burning platform that you have going on at the business that people data can help you make decisions around? One great example is I'm working with a quick service restaurant that wants to go from 4,000 locations to 7,000 locations. Well, turns out that of their 4,000 locations, only about 50% of their location managers feel fully equipped to be managers. <laughs> so if they're going okay. to beef that up to, to almost doubling in a short period of time, they're going to have to think about what they're going to do to train and enable managers, right? And even though we all intuitively know, as you said, we all intuitively know that these things connect, um, you can never over-communicate that to your frontline people because... Uh, a retail manager, a store manager, they're thinking about how do I make sure I have enough people staffed to operate the floor today, right? How do I deal with that person that just quit the other day? How do I deal with this angry customer? So the more yeah. that we can help them connect the, the dots between the data and the outcomes, uh, the better it will be for them. So business relevant. And then C, conversation-based or conversation-driven. Um, you know, a lot of times well-intentioned leaders HR people, analytics folks will take the data and go to the drawing board in the corner by themselves and analyze everything um, to the nth degree and then come back with an action plan that they then dictate to the organization. Um, yeah. But it's better to co-create that plan mm -hmm. um, uh, in a conversation-based way. So that, you know, I love how many people like they, they, they have a finding in their data and they're like, okay, well now we want to run focus groups to understand what's, what's happening behind here, which isn't a bad thing, but it's like, okay, well, how about you call that focus group an action planning session and you have every manager have that conversation with their team <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, conversation based. So that's the ABC. And then the one, two, three covers communication. Um, I think in the rush to try and do all the things we can really dilute the impact of the effort that we have. So what data can really provide for us is the gift of focus. Of all the good things that we know we ought to do, what direction is the data pointing us into to say that of all the things that we could do, this is where there seems to be a relationship there. Um, and why not act on that one thing? Better to act on one thing and put all of your effort into it than, than to try to do all the things. So act on one area, yeah. mm. two things about it, 
because you don't necessarily know it's going to work. Uh, maybe you even try an A-B test, but act on one thing, do two things about it, and communicate what you've done three times through three different channels. So not everybody looks at Slack, not everybody looks at Microsoft Teams, not everybody looks at emails, not everybody pays attention during team meetings. So you have to have multiple channels of communication because oftentimes there's a lot of work that well-intentioned HR folks are doing um, that is connected back to people analytics and employee data, but they never communicate that that's the reason why they're doing those things. Um, yeah. Or they do communicate it, but it gets lost in the noise, right? So yeah. as yeah, many yeah. times as you can repeat like a drum, we heard you all say X, yes. therefore we are doing Y. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was about to say, yeah, because yeah, oftentimes the, the difficulty is that we ask questions, um, but it seems like we've asked the questions for no reason whatsoever, because the people who answered those questions don't see the results of the questions that were asked, there is no direct link made between, okay, so you said, um, uh, you know, we asked you these questions and now here's the answer based on, you know, or here's a conversation to exactly, as you said, co-create the answer based on the data as it came back and, and trying to kind of dive into that a little bit more. Um, oftentimes I think we're, we're guilty of asking the question, but not actually sharing the results. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's or, do, or doing nothing about it <laughs> at all. <laughs> just asking the question for the sake of asking the question. Yeah. If you're going to ask the question just for the sake of asking the question, don't ask the question, right? Like Exactly. <laughs> it's a waste of everyone's time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, it's like uh, the classic example is, is if you don't intend to raise wages, don't ask people about their satisfaction with wages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that would just annoy them if you, if you say, every, you know, everyone says that the wages are way too low, but we're not doing anything about it. Yeah. How's the <laughs> okay. temperature in here? Actually, it's kind of cold. Oh, well, that's too bad. I can't change the thermostat. It's broken. Oh, don't oh. don't go down that road. <laughs> Personal experience with that as well. And, you know, measurement of the temperature and let's leave it the temperature and people sneakily changing the temperature. And yeah, it's a huge uh, bone of contention, I think, uh, especially now with people going back into uh, office working. It's so, it's, funny. Gonna, it's so funny. It's going to rear its ugly head again. I know it is. <laughs> it's so funny. You know, early on when there was this exodus of people from the office to working from home, there was a transition period where there were the technology wasn't quite there. Uh, mm. And now that people are going back into the office, there's also that transition period where people aren't used to using the conference room technology. And it's just <laughs> yeah. funny how it's changed so much. I can't remember how to turn on the lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of that kind of stuff. Um, now, it's interesting what you're Thing about co-creating the action plan. I was involved in in that in in the last organisation I worked in. We we did a the Gallup Q12 survey and exactly that we we took the results, but we created um, teams of of you know manager led teams to talk about what the results were and what we individually as a team could do differently based on the results asked you know at, at the lowest level that we could go down to um, essentially. So it was really interesting to. For us to to actually be creating those um, those solutions for ourselves, I think that was really empowering for us, for sure. Yeah, it is, and it's it can happen so much more quickly than the organizational changes, right? Um, if you think about like the um, we call it at the the XM Institute the the different loops, right? So there's that inner loop which is hmm. the team loop. And then there's the outermost loop, which is the organizational processes and policies. And 
you know, there's organizations that overemphasize one versus the other. Um, I love the manager-oriented action planning, and it's part of my DNA as a former Gallup employee. Uh, and I also recognize that sometimes there are systemic issues that can only be handled by the, the uppermost leadership within the organization. Mm. You, can only, you can only make the most impact by, by driving both at the same time. Um, and then there's the inner loops that are more like, you know, uh, specific um, product or experience owners, right? Like who's, who's like the talent acquisition team for candidate experience or the onboarding team, if you have one for the onboarding experience, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Um, I'm also conscious that if if people are getting started with this type of approach for the first time, any thoughts to share on what they might do just to get started? You know, if they're they're kind of new to this whole people analytics thing, what what might they start by doing? Do a baseline survey. Mm. Um, use good technology to collect it. Uh, I, I work for Qualtrics, so obviously I'm going to promote Qualtrics. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag recommend Qualtrics. <laughs> um, and then use a, a pre-validated survey methodology or hire someone like me um, or, or someone who has a depth of survey design to design the survey for you um, because they will help you do things like ask actionable questions um, yeah. They'll help you vet the questions to, to give yourself um, the, to answer that hard question of, do we really want to ask this? Is this something that we're really prepared to act on? Yeah. Um, and make sure that you design with the end in mind. Um, so going back to that action orientation piece, what's the action that we're going to take when we get this these results back? Plan for that and build that into your project plan. Uh, and I think that's 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 the, the first place is to do that kind of baseline. That first survey might actually be longer than you would normally do because you're not going to know exactly what's important to your people just mm -hmm. yet. So you might want to test out a lot of different theories around what that is. And then based upon the results of that, you'll start to learn what other listening touch points you might want to add. So if you see within that data, there's something going on with manager effectiveness. Well, maybe you want to add another listening touch point around your, your manager training programs. If you see within that, that there's an indication that something might be happening on the onboarding side, well, then maybe you want to add another listening touch point on the onboarding side. But that, that baseline will start to give you an initial understanding of where you want to focus and where you want to go next. Yeah, love that. I think it's um it's it's straightforward and it's really practical for people to start doing that straight away. Is there anything else that you would like to share, Kevin, before we we start wrapping things up? No, I just say you know you know uh, feel free to, to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I love to connect with people in in this space. Um, and uh, check out my uh, my most recent blog article on the XM Institute around acting on employee experience data. You just look me up, Kevin Great. E. Campbell. The G often helps um, because of yes, yeah, yeah, common name. <laughs> <laughs> Um, brilliant. And we can link to that article in the show notes as well. So keep an eye out for that. Now, Kevin, the one of the questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast is what does being happier at work mean to you? Yeah, so uh, I love that question. And, uh, you know, Ed Diener uh, is kind of the, the, the forefather of positive psychology and the measurement of happiness. And he used an instrument called subjective well-being for, for measuring happiness. And it has three components. 
It has your day-to-day moods and emotions that are considered positive, your day-to-day moods and emotions that are considered negative. So positive ones are things like exhilaration, uh, laughter, interest, excitement. Negative ones are things like boredom and sadness. Uh, so there's those, those two components, positive emotions, negative emotions. And then the third component is life satisfaction. So mm. how satisfied with, with your life have you accomplished the things that you've set out to accomplish? Um, and together, these three components make up happiness, right? So high positive emotions, low negative emotions, and high life satisfaction. But for all of us, you can be any combination of those three things. So you can have high positive and high negative emotions, which means that you're all over the place, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) along with higher low life satisfaction, right? You can have really high life satisfaction and have low positive emotions and low negative emotions and be just kind of flat. And I think for each of us, we have different weightings in terms of what's most important to us. Is happiness to us being not sad? (laughs) Is happiness to us having a lot of positive emotions? Or is happiness with us having a a really high appraisal of how we're doing in one's life? And for me personally, I like to have a good balance of all three. I like to accomplish what I set out to do in life. And I'd like to do that while maximizing my positive emotions and minimizing my, my negative emotions where possible. Yeah, 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 work, but, it, but all those things. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. You just just put those in, and I'm wondering, kind of follow on question to that: Does that change throughout life as well? So, if you're saying it's maybe different for different people, the weighting that we give each of those, but perhaps it changes throughout um, throughout our lives as well. The emphasis that we put on each of those things, maybe early in our life, there's less focus on the life accomplishments because you have fewer of those. I think, I I don't know, uh, but I I think there Mm. is some data that would suggest that. Um, So one example is um, there's some some interesting research that's come out of German data that has showed that uh, new parents, especially women, um, have a a decrease in subjective well-being after having kids. Okay, Uh, interesting. but, But if you ask most people, the overwhelming majority of, of us who are parents, and I'm a new parent, I have a, a nine-month-old daughter. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe I do experience a little bit more grumpiness from time to time. Um, but man, I wouldn't trade any of that for my daughter. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I do think um, there are different components that get em- emphasized at different life stages. And I think okay, yeah, different yeah. employees, right? Different, different points of yeah. career, different things are going to be important to you. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Really interesting. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. There was lots of different directions that we could have gone today, but I think yeah, we ended up with really, really practical tips for people to take away and and really make a difference to their their employees' working experience, I think. So appreciate everything that you shared and thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Bye. 
That was Kevin Campbell talking all things people experience and people analytics. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, It was an opportunity for me to totally geek out on data and analytics and the people experience. Absolutely 100% loved that conversation. You know, Kevin really speaks my language as well. So really, really enjoyed that. So we started the conversation by talking about this multiplier effect and the, the multiplying effect of putting people first, be they employees or customers as well, but the impact that that has then on the bottom line. So it's not just about looking at profits first, but really I see businesses shifting towards putting people first instead of profits. One of the reasons behind this is the longer people stay, they better serve customers. So I really liked that, um, you know, just a a little insight, which is quite intuitive, but maybe not something that had been directly compared uh, before as well. We talked about this idea of how you frame your work. So it's it's less about whether you find money more important or whether you find purpose more important, but how you think about the work that you do. So it's not that there is necessarily bad jobs out there. but it's thinking about uh, how it is that that you do what you do. And the example that he shared was uh, around the nurses. So the nurses can feel this sense of meaning and purpose in any hospital or in any location that they work, whereas the differential for them is how much they get paid in those different locations that they work. And then conversely, for the medical device sales, where the perception was that they were going to be driven by money, it is they were expected to earn a a great deal of money no matter where, uh, which company they worked in. And so what they were really looking for was the meaning and purpose and really believing in what the company was doing. So I thought that was just a really solid insight to share as part of that. We talked as well about some practical, you know, tips and steps for actually looking at the data. And and we were talking about typically HR operational data and using that, asking questions of the data in order to solve business problems and determine some of the business goals as well. So some of the, the typical information that that the systems have already will be things like time to fill, you have demographic data as well, and information on turnover. But often what's missing from that what data, if you like, is the why behind it. So that is coming from the experience data, the experience that that employees are having within the organisation and actually getting that feedback from the employees as well. We talked as well about the moments that matter. So these are the moments in the employee journey that kind of tend to stand out and, as we mentioned, are related to each other. But it's about determining exactly how they are related to each other. And and as I shared my own experience, you know, they they are related to each other intuitively, but actually that's backed up by data as well. So it's it's interesting to hear about that. So we talked about, you know, the entire journey from finding out about the opportunity to being recruited, going through the interview process, the onboarding, the time to ramp up to become competent at, at actually doing the job. Your needs change over time. Um, you know, perhaps after two years, you start getting restless. You want to try out new things. Uh, and then, you know, when you're taking leave or when you're returning, from leave? What's the experience that you have of the organisation? Maybe you have become a manager or you've become a more senior leader within the business as well. So all of these different touch points and understanding people's experience of those different touch points when they are in the organisation, it's really important and linking between those as well. 
The other fascinating thing I thought was this, the engagement being U-shaped. So the reason that it's U-shaped is the people who are in the organisation for a long time have seen a lot of career progression. So we talked about this idea of getting promotions, but not just getting promotions, the importance of lateral moves as well and how important they are. We expanded then on this concept of needs. We went into a bit more detail around the needs that I often talk about, the need for autonomy, relatedness and competence. We talked about one of the most important needs being this feeling that you get the opportunity to do what you do best every day. So that's related to the need for mastery, the need for for growth, or in my language, the need for a sense of competence in doing what you're doing so that there's sufficient challenge in what it is that you're doing, but it's not too hard that you can't actually achieve it as well. Now, we we drilled into this idea that most people are hardworking and want to do a good job. And we talked about theory X and Y again, I can't remember which one is which, but but basically we we got to the outcome that it's not necessarily about whether people want to work or whether they don't want to work, whether they're a bit lazier, but more about our belief in people and how we how we approach that. And we talked about this, the um, the Pygmalion effect and the importance of the expectations that we have of other people. And when we have high expectations of people, they live up to those expectations. And conversely, when we have lower expectations of people, they live up to those expectations as well. Kevin shared some really interesting insights then about how to make the employee experience data more actionable. And he has something, it's just really easy to remember, A, B, C. So A is for action oriented, and that means intentionally collecting data and collecting not just the information, but but making sure that the there's action data in there. So there's items in there that you can actually take action on. So the examples that he shared was like whether or not you have the tools, something we went on to talk about separately, whether you feel equipped to be a manager. So you can very obviously and very clearly take action on both both of those questions. So making sure that it's action oriented. The next one in, in then is that it is business relevant. So B is for business relevant. And that means that it answers a business question that you have. And it's not just collecting data for interest or collecting data for the sake of collecting data and and making sure that you're actually able to do something with it. So it's not just we think we need to do an employee engagement survey, therefore we're going to do it. It's we're doing an employee engagement survey and we are expected to take business action based on the results of the survey. And C then is that it is conversation driven, that it's about co-creating the action plan. It's not about one person sitting away in a room, analysing the data themselves and coming up with an action plan. It's about co-creating with employees what actions are going to be taken as a result of the data that has been collected or the results that you get from the survey. And then the second element of that is around communicating it. And what he's saying is it's one, two, three. So focus on one area, share two things that you're going to work on and communicate it through three different channels. Really, really liked that approach as well. So, so easy to remember. So if you're only getting started, that is an approach that you can take to taking more action on the back of the employee experience data. Now, to wrap up the conversation, we talked about what you might do to get started, because I'm very aware that there's a lot of people out there who haven't 
started using the employee data that they currently have in their business. So how do you actually get started with it? He shared some really great insights around that as well. So number one, setting a baseline. Number two, using the right technology to collect that data. Number three, designing the survey that has actionable questions and vetting the questions. So are you really prepared to take action on the things that you're asking about? As an example would be, don't ask people what they think of salary if you have no intentions of increasing the salary. And then number four is starting with the end in mind. So what are the outcomes that you're expecting to get from this and what actions can you take as a result of this? Um, Really, really love that. I also loved his approach around the, you know, talking about happiness at work and what that means and under and happiness generally in life as well. So, you know, um, high on positive emotions, low on negative emotions and high on life satisfaction generally and what we're accomplishing in life. If you want to get involved in the conversation, I do post about the podcast on social media. Mostly I will be on LinkedIn and Instagram. So Instagram is happieratwork.ie. That's the same as the website. If you'd like to connect with me through the website, you're very welcome to do so there uh, or connect with me on LinkedIn as well. My name is Aoife O'Brien, A-O-I-F-E-O apostrophe B-R-I-E-N. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you there. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I am so glad you tuned in today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love to get your thoughts. Head on over to social media to get involved in the conversation. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love if you could rate, review it or share it with a friend. If you want to know more about what I do or how I could help your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie. 